18, verse 13. Our subject, perfection. Deuteronomy 18, verse 13. Thou shalt be perfect with the Lord thy God. The tastes of these studies, of course, as some of you know, circulate across country. And from time to time I get letters from the people who listen to the tapes, and more than once one of them has said, I wish I could be there to ask them questions. And sometimes they ask questions by mail. A few weeks ago a very important question was raised, and I'm answering it today because it has to deal with the law. And the question was, You say that God expects us to keep the law. How can we when he commands us to be perfect? How can we be perfect? Now let's rephrase that question a little more bluntly. Is God bearing false witness when he asks us to be perfect? Is he asking something that is impossible? In Matthew 5, verse 48, our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount repeated this command, declaring, Be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. First of all, we must say that the law does not command us to do what we cannot do as men. Having said that, next, we must ask, how shall we understand this requirement? And wherein can we be perfect without bearing false witness concerning ourselves? What does perfect mean? Very obviously, when we begin to examine the word, it has changed its meaning. I've heard more than one person state that their English teacher in a public high school has told them that when the Constitution was written, the Founding Fathers used bad grammar because they said that they were gathered together, or we, the people of the United States, were trying to form a more perfect union. That was bad grammar, supposedly, because how could a thing be more perfect than perfect? They were not using bad grammar. Obviously, the meaning of the word has changed. We will not take time to trace, because it's irrelevant to our subject, the meaning of the word as it has changed in English. Our concern is with the biblical meaning of the word perfect. Very clearly, it has another meaning than we think of now. When we examine the Bible, just to cite a few uses of the word perfect 
in the Bible. We are told in Genesis 6, verse 9, that Noah was perfect. In Genesis 17, verses 1, Abraham was called to be perfect. In Psalm 37, 37, there's a reference to perfect men as though they were an everyday fact of life. Again, in Psalm 101, verse 2, David declared, I will behave myself wisely in a perfect way. I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. Very obviously, therefore, when the Bible says, as our text declares, Deuteronomy 18:13, thou shalt be perfect with the Lord thy God, it is commanding something that was not an impossibility, something that was a fact of life from before the flood, from the days of Noah at least. What does it mean? There are several words in the Old and New Testament which are translated as perfect. These words mean, in the original Hebrew and Greek, upright, having integrity, blameless, mature, and also the sense of complete. They do not imply sinlessness. The addition of sinlessness to the idea of perfection is something done by pietism in the modern church. In other words, to be perfect in the biblical sense was to have integrity before God and to be mature, to be blameless. It did not mean sinless. Let us examine, for example, the comment of R.C.H. Lenski, a very prominent Lutheran scholar, and his comment on Matthew 5.48, where our Lord summons us to be perfect. He says, and I quote, the English translation perfect is largely responsible for the idea of absolute sinlessness often, gi often given as the meaning. And it is unfortunate that we have no derivative from goal adequate to render the Greek. Goal is another translation that is acceptable. The fact that absolute sinlessness is not the thought expressed here we see from verse 6 of Matthew 5 where the blessed disciples still hunger for righteousness, and from verse 7, where they still need mercy and are blessed by continually obtaining it. Perfectionism may imagine that it is able to attain sinlessness in this life. This goal we shall not reach until we enter glory. Equally incorrect is the idea that in these expositions of the law, Jesus offers only counsels for the perfect which are unobtainable, unattainable on the part of lesser Christians. Christ has no double standard. His greatest saints are found among the common believers who by grace have become pure in heart, unquote. In other words, perfection in the biblical sense means uprightness. It means maturity in terms of a goal or purpose an end established by God. 
our maturity in heaven will include sinlessness, but our maturity here is of a different sort. It is interesting that the Berkeley version, in translating our text, Deuteronomy 18, verse 13, renders it, Thou shalt be blameless before the Lord thy God. In this life, we can be perfect in the sense of blameless in our faithfulness to God's purpose and maturity in terms of it. When we are blameless, we are not necessarily faultless. G. Campbell Morgan told a story years ago here in Los Angeles, incidentally, in the early 20s to illustrate this point. It was his first trip, I believe, to this country. He left his family in England, in London, while he came here to preach for several months. And in dealing with the distinction between blameless and faultless, he cited a letter he had just received from his little son, who had just started school. And the letter said, Dear Daddy, I love you, I miss you, when are you coming home, your loving son? Morgan pointed out to the, the serious errors in the letter. The boy didn't know anything about punctuation. His spelling was very bad. He spelled love, L-U-V, when, W-E-N, and there were many other errors. He still didn't know capital letters, so everything was written in small letters, uncapitalized. But, said Morgan, the letter, while not faultless, in fact very faulty, was blameless. What is blameless in a child is not blameless in an adult. What is blameless in an adult at a certain stage of growth is inexcusable ten years later. Maturity means continuous growth towards God's appointed purpose. And we are summoned to be mature, blameless, perfect before the Lord our God. The greater the responsibility, Scripture says, the greater the maturity required to be blameless. As a result, the greater the position given to us, the greater our responsibility and what would be blameless in others becomes blameworthy in us then. A minister, a doctor, a judge, a civil officer, as well as their wives, have responsibilities which require more maturity of them so that things that are blameless in others are blameworthy in them. Thus, in England, until not too long ago, In the Foreign Office, the Labour government had a man who was very, 
blameworthy because of his injudicious remarks. Now, many of the things that Brown had to say were things that the average Englishman felt. He expressed opinions that sometimes were very blunt, forthright, and honest opinions. But in a person holding high office, they were so indiscreet that they created international repercussions almost every time. And finally, he had to be replaced. We've seen something very similar in this country in the last year or two in Mrs. Mitchell, wife of the Attorney General of the United States, John Mitchell. Now, as a total bystander, I can enjoy what she has had to say, and I can't think of anything she has said that I really disagree with. She has spoken out time and again, very plainly, very bluntly, very wittily. But she has caused the administration a great deal of harm. Why? Because her opinions coming from a person in high places have created deep rifts in Washington, hurt feelings, lost votes for the administration at key points. And as a result, they have been very injudicious. Millions of people have enjoyed them, but they have done damage. She was back in the papers again just this month after her husband had told her to shut up and say nothing in public and if she were asked to say anything to say it in Swahili because he had come close to losing his job because of her outspokenness. And just the other day this item appeared. And I quote, For months now the lady's outspoken statements have been conspicuously missing from the press. In a, obedience to an injunction from U.S. Attorney General John Mitchell. Henceforth, he has decreed, if his wife Martha must speak out in public, it must be in Swahili. But what husband has ever silenced his wife? Administering the oath of office to the new president of the American Newspaper Women's Club in Washington last week, Martha Mitchell spoke in near faultless Swahili, administering the oath. Rule the Attorney General who is present, the oath in Swahili is perfectly legal, unquote. Now, you can't help but love a woman like that. She's irrepressible. She managed to get into the headlines or in the news in spite of the injunction to keep her mouth shut and talk only in Swahili. But that kind of determination can be very dangerous. So, we have to say, in spite of a very real regard for a woman of that wit and intelligence that she is blameworthy. Maturity requires of us, and that's the meaning, the basic meaning of perfection, that we consider the total picture. Pietism has thus borne false witness concerning God's requirements. Because it has turned the command to perfection to be sinlessness and to be a sweet, pious, 
simpering kind of idiocy. Uh, someone told me that it, a Christian never hurt anybody's feelings. That's not perfection. When men expect sinless perfection as the goal for the Christian, they are not being true to the requirements of Scripture because this is an impossibility in this life. But more than that, it creates the wrong kind of situation. What happens if husband and wife expect perfection of each other? Let's put it on a very personal level. They're bound to have problems. Anytime you expect your husband or your wife to be perfect, you're going to fight with them. Because they are not perfect in the sense of being sinless and faultless. So that kind of expectation creates problems. And when the church teaches that sinlessness is to be required of us, and some churches have members who claim they are sinless, the net result is hypocrisy, which masks a veil of trouble. Moreover, when people expect sinlessness and faultlessness of one another, it leads to being disillusioned with people, disappointed in them. We expect them to be more than mortal men, and we become intolerant of them. We find people impossible. It is a significant fact that at the end of every age, this kind of demand tends to flourish. As Rome began to decline, what happened? The problems that Rome faced were impossible. Rome's economy had reached the point where it was beyond all recovery. The bureaucracy had grown and grown to the point where it was now the government and the emperors came and went and it made little difference. The bureaucracy was the reality. And people began to realize that everything was too big, beyond the solution. So what did they do? Parents began to require their children to be perfect and became intolerant of them, impatient with them when they were not. Husbands and wives began to be intolerant of each other. They wanted everything to be right, and the world around them wasn't right, so in the home they began to demand perfection. And, of course, they didn't get it. They began to demand it of their friends, of their organizations, and they didn't get it. And so what happened? The result was that long before Rome fell, Jews, Greeks, Romans, Egyptians, and others were forsaking the society of men to become hermits in the desert. This is a fact we're not often told. We're told about the Christian hermits. They came later. They picked this up from the Romans. It was a part of the paganism which had infected the church. And what happened when these Jews, Greeks, Romans, and later, later Christians went into the desert, running away from man, 
they found they couldn't live with themselves. The whole world was out of kilter, true. They were making demands on mankind and on their friends and loved ones that could not be met. They had forsaken them, and now they were making demands of themselves, which could not be met. And the result was total frustration. This kind of sick perfectionism, anti-biblical perfectionism, instead of solving problems, only aggravates them. This was already beginning to appear, this kind of mood, in very limited fashion, but appearing in our Lord's day and in St. Paul's day. And St. Paul, commenting on this in Galatians 6, 1 through 5, referred to the faults, the sins, the frailties, the weaknesses of all believers. And he made two statements which seem contradictory. Everyone shall bear his own burden. In other words, we are responsible for our own faults. And also, bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, what do these contradictory statements mean? Bearing one another's burdens means forbearing, being patient with. And every man shall bear his own burden. Every man has his own responsibilities. Thus our maturity, being mature, perfect, blameless before the Lord our God, comes from seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Biblical perfectionism, if we use that word, which it would be better to drop, means maturity. The ability to grow in terms of our experiences, to use them to draw closer to God's goal. When a civilization, when a people loses maturity, then it turns on itself. At the end of an age, when a civilization begins to lose its mature ability to deal with new experiences, what does it indulge in? Why it indulges in a witch hunt. Or it concentrates on subversives. Now this is a very significant fact. It doesn't say very much for the conservative movement today. Because the conservative movement, like every end of an age group that has lost its maturity, its ability to grow, to mature in terms of experiences, is concerned with subversion. Now this does not mean we tolerate subversion, but Societies which concentrate on the problems of subversion are near death. They have lost the capacity of growth, the capacity to cope with their problems. 
every age in history has had its subversives. Never in all our history as a people were there more subversives in this country than the years from 1774 through about 1812 to 15. Years of the War of Independence, the formation of the Constitution, and the War of 1812 when we were a young country. I mentioned a few weeks ago that newly discovered evidence, in fact, the opening of the British archives indicates that Benjamin Franklin was a British agent all through those years. We do know that in Washington's cabinet, one cabinet member was unveiled as being a foreign agent. We do know that under Adams, when the Alien and Subversion, uh, Sedition Acts were passed, every boat that left the country for a few days before the act went into effect was loaded with known agents who were leaving the country. The acts were repealed almost once and they came back. We know that they were in high places, right up into the White House. Every kind of office virtually. Did the country go under? It was very weak in those days. No. Why? Because in spite of the subversives, there was leadership that had a capacity for growth. Now, just as you and I are exposed at the moment and have within us or around us all kinds of germs so that we could come down with any number of ailments if we were weak. So too with a society. It always has within the body politic all kinds of infections. The key point is its basic health. And this is what biblical perfection is about. It means the capacity to mature in terms of a goal, to absorb experience and profit by it. Without the ability to grow in terms of a goal, no cause could endure merely by rooting out its subversive elements. The salt that has lost its savour, our Lord said, is good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. There is no divine protection for men and nations who lose their calling and savour. In fact, there is then no escaping judgment. The scripture tells us it is as if a man did flee from a lion and a bear met him and went into his house and leaned his hand on the wall and a serpent bit him. There is then no escape. It is a sick society. Its destiny is death. But God summons us, thou shalt be perfect. Blameless, mature, 
upright, having integrity, the capacity to grow in the form of God, God, God. This is the law of class. This we can do. God is not formed false with in summoning us to be perfect before him. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, thy word is truth, and we rejoice in thy word. Give us grace, our Father, to be mature, to have the capacity to grow in the face of all experiences, to be blameless before thee. We thank thee, our God, but as we gain maturity before thee, so we gain strength in dealing with all enemies, with all problems, with all sicknesses. And we are more than conquerors than we can but love God. We praise thee for thy prospering and protecting grace. We thank thee for one another. We thank thee, our Father, that thou hast called us to be a people in thee. And by thy grace hast brought us together and knit us one to another in Jesus' Christ. Prosper us in our fellowship, in our obedience, and in our thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, Amen. Are there any questions now with respect to our lesson, first of all? Yes. Let's see. The attitude of a Christian towards a non-Christian could be one of keeping the law to them, because to love our neighbor means to fulfill the law in relationship to him. To be charitable, as occasion requires it, to seek to provide him uh, with knowledge of the gospel, but if he rejects it, then we shake off the dust of our feet, as it were. To be blameless in our relationship with him before God. No. No, because we stand before God as sinners saved by grace, not of ourselves. Yes. Oh no. 
Oh, no, this does not mean what the pietists have taught us to mean, that uh, you're nice to everybody, you never hurt anybody's feelings. Maturity means taking a stand in terms of God's law for ourselves and for others, obeying God's law. Because she is speaking out in such a way that she is doing harm rather than good. It's for her husband to speak out, not for her. And her husband is not speaking out because in those cases it would do no good. You see. Her speaking out has been entertaining and a delight. I, I have enjoyed it, frankly. But of course, I'm not involved. If I were up there in Washington in a high place, I'd probably want to boot her for what she said. When I was back in New York and she was speaking out, and it was on TV news, I, I was listening at the home of a man who was a former editor and knows Washington well. And he said, there's no question that phones are buzzing all over the place in Washington while people are calling out to apologize for her because she could lose them a lot of votes. So you see, it was irresponsible for her to speak out, for it was just, as it were, self-expression. Now, you can do that. It's not blameworthy in you. You're just expressing your opinion on a public issue. But it's blameworthy for her. Yes. in terms of God's law, we're putting up a few bricks at a time. 
the only way it'll be done. The only way it was done in the Roman Empire by the Christians. Yes. Yes. It is saying that the law cannot function unless it is uh, totally false. The whole process of appeals is to try to remove the defects from the law. But you don't destroy something because it's wrong. You don't tear down a building because you find that a cabinet doesn't fit properly. You try to get that cabinet door to fit properly. You work within the structure, not by tearing down the structure. Yes. again as new creatures in Christ and we are bathed in Christ. Now a thing is tolerable in a baby that is not tolerable in an adult. That's why we put a bib on a baby. We don't put a bib on an adult, although there's times when I've needed one. But what is tolerable in a child, we cannot tolerate in him 10 years, 15, 20 years later. You see. So it is when you first become a Christian you begin to grow little by little. And therefore, you are maturing. In the process of that maturing, your ability to obey the law matures also. Thus, at a certain point, you obey thou shalt not steal. This is a concrete example. By not stealing something from anyone. But then you begin to realize all the ramifications of what that commandment means. How it applies to society and to the state. You see, you begin to penetrate the meaning of the law deeper, progressively. Now, next week we shall be beginning our study of the commandments, the tenth, thou shalt not covet. And I think we'll all see something of the meaning of that law that we perhaps have not seen before. And therefore, we'll grow in our mature ability to obey the law. Haven't you grown in your grasp of the law in the last year? Hasn't this been growth, you see? So, there is this continual process of growth. Our time is just about over, and I'd like to share a few things with you. I have mentioned many times the fact that history today is often a case of false witness. This last week, a couple of uh, things I read were examples of history bearing flagrant false witness. And in the one instance, it was in the summer 1970 issue of Horizon, a hardback uh, magazine that comes out in book form four times a year. 
an article by a prominent English scholar, Frederick B. Grunfeld, in his study of the Troubadours. And in it he cites Clement of Alexandria to the effect that, I quote, every woman ought to be overwhelmed with shame at the thought that she is a woman, unquote. Now, this and other passages are often cited from the church fathers as though they were very, very anti-woman. And this is very commonly cited, and others like it, which indicate that they hated women and the like. Now, this is totally a mistranslation and a very obvious version of what he had to say. Because what Clement of Alexandria said in Somata, and I have it, and it's available in English to almost any scholar anywhere in any library of any consequence, was very, very different. It was in a chapter on drinking. And the point that Clement of Alexandria made was that a woman who is drunk ought to be especially ashamed of the fact because she is a woman and is being immodest in her drunkenness. He did not say that being a woman was a shameful fact. And yet, scholar after scholar reproduces that by dropping out key words and mistranslating in order to present the church fathers as nasty people who had a horror of sex and a horror of women. Then, a very competent scholar who's done extensive research in the Vatican archives in a book that I read this week refers to Henry VIII as having been seriously ill with syphilis. Now again, this is pure slander. I'm not championing Henry VIII. He can be severely criticized on the grounds of a number of things. His economic policy, his religious policy, his moral policy, but he was a very intelligent man. And he definitely did not have any venereal disease. He had his medical history. We have very competent medical historians who have diagnosed his condition. And there's no excuse for that. And yet, this is about the third time in uh, the past year I've seen such references, all of which is pure slander. Then, apropos of nothing, uh, I ran across a statement in uh, a book I picked up just yesterday. It's a Dictionary of American Proverbs. And I thought this was very choice. One of the proverbs on husbands. One good husband is worth two good wives. For the scarcer things are, the more they're valued. Then, this item in the news, in case you missed it, this is something that happened just this past week in Ventura. And I think uh, important items in the news like this ought to be shared. 
At any rate, I quote, Louis Chacon no longer has a boa constrictor in his toilet, and thereby hangs the tale. It all started for Chacon two weeks ago when the tenant moved from his home at 368 Bannister Street, Ventura. Chacon didn't want to see the house remain empty, so he decided to move in himself. What he did not know was that the former tenant had flushed a six-foot, four-inch snake down the commode before departing. It was only a matter of time before Chacon lifted the commode lid and, to his horror, found himself face to face with a grinning boa. The snake was pretty as snake Joe, green with large black spots. But Chacon didn't stop to admire the reptile. He slammed down the commode lid and flushed the toilet. Badly shaken, Chacon went to his own second bathroom and gingerly raised the commode lid. Sure enough, the snake was waiting for him with glittering eyes and the same macabre grin. It had slithered through the pipe system and had beaten Chacon to the bathroom. This began a two-week ordeal when animal shelter men stopped the snake from toilet to toilet in vain. Chacon very quickly stopped using the bathroom. When the snake popped out again at Chacon yesterday morning, he decided he had enough. He called the Ventura County Sheriff's Department this time and deputies rushed to his home. A deputy with a broom tried to stuff the snake back down the toilet, but the reptile coiled around the broom handle and quickly disarmed the officer. James Norton, animal control supervisor, was called this time, and the snake fled down the pipe. We had to unbolt the commode from the floor to get him, Norton said. He was a tricky customer. He is a water-oriented snake and really knew that pipe system. But we finally got him with a snare. The snake is in a cage now at the animal shelter in El Rio, and Chacon can go back to his bathroom with confidence again. But he's trying to locate the former tenant who flushed the boa constrictor down the toilet. He can have his snake back again. Now, if you think you have troubles, think of poor Louis Chacon and the two weeks of trouble he had. Let us bow our heads for the benediction. And now go in peace. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost bless you and keep you, guide and protect you, this day and always. Amen.